Hey there, welcome to The Tent. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. You know, the, the following uh, podcast is filled with a lot of ideas and points. There's some that you might agree with or perhaps violently disagree with. This is good. Remember, it's my opinion offered up on a topic or set of topics that I'm pretty passionate about, and it's intended to be sort of an icebreaker or mind opener to facilitate further discussions. I don't have all the answers or even a lot of them, but I have some thoughts, as I hope you do too. It should be discussed, debated. Healthy debate is good for the hobby. When it comes to blackwater or blackwater aquariums, a few fishes come to mind immediately for many of us. You know, cardinal tetras, wild betas, resbora, etc., etc. Yet every day, I field emails and PMs from people who are asking suggestions on some, you know, cool fish for their blackwater botanical method aquariums. And of course, these are really subjective questions. I mean, it's like asking a teenager who's the top, you know, YouTuber or what the hottest, uh, you know, Megan the Stallion song is or whatever. Opinions are many and they're varied. Fishes are a bit different than, you know, hip-hop artists, Instagram influencers, YouTubers and fashion, but they all have their fans and detractors. There are many cool fishes that you can keep that not only will challenge you a bit, they'll provide pleasant diversion from the cool kids, you know, like the apistos and the flashy uh, guarmies or whatever that seem to be the it fishes in blackwater tanks sometimes. Some are downright obscure. However, there are a few that we're well aware, you know, that although we're well aware of them, seem to be passed over in favor of the flashier, larger, and maybe even sexier fishes. And fewer still that everyone sort of knows about, but not everybody really knows. Our friend, the checkerboard cichlid, Dicrosis filamentosus, is one of these fishes. One which is perfect for the tannin-stained worlds that, you know, we create. One which we should be working with a lot more for a lot of reasons. Although unknown, uh, only known to, um, to science since I think it was like the 1950s, like 1958 to be exact, this fish has become sort of a poster child for the understated cool cichlid, and it deserves more of our attention. Comes from the Amazon region, like you didn't expect that, right? Of Colombia, Venezuela, and Brazil, specifically the Orinoco and the Rio Negro. These little guys are kind of shy, occasionally fussy, and altogether endearing. They uh, inhabit sluggish, low pH, low hardness streams and tributaries where lots of roots, leaves, and other botanical materials provide cover. Obviously, if you're a botanical method blackwater aquarium lover, which I have a hunch that you might, many of you are, these fishes are perfect for our displays. So before you question next time, what's the coolest fish for blackwater? That might be one of them. Of course, an ideal situation would be to set up a modest sized tank. I don't know, maybe 40 gallons, 160 liters or less with a small group of them, some abundant hiding places and lots and lots of leaves on the bottom, and they can develop their own little hierarchy and social structure. So you could set up a tank with a lot of wood oriented vertically to stimulate, you know, root tangles and have a thick layer of leaves on the bottom, you know, just choose your favorite for a simple, easy to maintain hardscape that's surprisingly faithful representation of their natural habitats. While not flashy at all, these diminutive little cichlids have a certain cool, earthy look which lends itself so well to a botanical method aquarium. The checkerboard color pattern and lighter-shaped tails and the males really stand out against the dark botanicals and substrates in a sort of a non-flashy way. And the fact that they're true specimen fish, even at this late date in the hobby, tells you that there's a lot more work to be done with them. Sure, they've been bred numerous times, but they have a reputation for being challenging or even touchy. 
something about needing soft acidic water and benefiting from humic substances. Oh, wait a tick. We offer that as part of our regularly scheduled environmental programming, right? Yes, we do. We're into that stuff. Which brings me to a quick general digression, or perhaps even the whole point of this rambling little rant today. I think a lot of the so-called challenging or troublesome fishes in the hobby, specifically ones which come from more specialized habitats like blackwater or whatever, have earned these reputations for sensitivity over the years because the vast majority of the hobby is insistent upon adapting them to conditions that are consistent with those that they have adapted to, that are, excuse me, inconsistent uh, with those that they've adapted to over eons of, re- of evolution. You know, hobby literature will cite how adaptable that fishes from soft acidic water are when it spawns, you know, when the fish spawns in hard alkaline city water. And this has sort of emboldened us. It's compelled us to use this adaptability to our advantage to make keeping and breeding said fish easier for us. Yet when strange health issues start occurring over time or the fishes take on less than stellar coloration, vigor, and growth, we're quick to search for other answers like food or husbandry or whatever. I think we have a hobby as a hobby may have created this problem. I really do. Now, don't get me wrong. The aforementioned factors are valid points and good items to investigate under any circumstances where fish troubles, when I say that in air quotes, occur. Yet part of me can't help but wonder, you know, how much better off many of these so-called specialty fishes would be if we adapted them to, you know, adapted to their needs rather than they adapted to our needs. Like us learning how to provide conditions that the fishes have evolved under. The idea of repatriating some of these fishes which come from soft acidic blackwater habitats from our tap water conditions back into the water in which they've evolved and learning how to manage the overall captive environment is by no means new or revolutionary. It's just that we've sort of taken on a mindset of it's easier, quicker for us to adopt them to conditions that we can most easily offer them just because they can acclimate to wildly different conditions than they've evolved to live under doesn't mean that they should. I mean, it's not about us, right? The consistently successful, serious breeders have, and we all should, in my humble opinion. And as we've shown, it's not impossible to provide such conditions as a matter of practice. And in our own community, we've seen time and time again, hobbyists providing blackwater origin fishes with the conditions that they've evolved to thrive under for eons and seeing them display, you know, vigorous growth, intense coloration, and yeah, spawning behaviors. Initially, I wanted to say it was coincidence, just timing or whatever, but we've heard this story so often now over the years that I think it's more about us doing things right. Yet, I'm sure many are still skeptical about the reverse accommodation idea being a good one or even necessary. I can understand that, but I think it warrants further discussion. Need some examples of this concept? Well, look at the reef community or the planted tank enthusiasts. Once these hobbyists devoted their energies to providing fishes, corals, inverts, plants, whatever, the conditions that these organisms required to thrive rather than the conditions that we that were easiest for the hobbyists to provide, these specialty areas exploded with successes beyond our wildest dreams available to everyone who learns the rules of the game. And yes, technology and products eventually showed up on the market to enable the process of more easily providing what the organisms need, not to adapt them to more easily or conveniently provided tap water conditions, low light, low flow, etc. Rather, it was to make it easier for the largest number of hobbyists to provide the natural conditions which make it possible for these organisms to thrive. As much as we would have liked to be able to keep our thriving reefs full of corals and table-salted water or highlight-loving plants in dim conditions without CO2 or nutritive substrates, 
Nature wouldn't let us play that way. We have to play nature's game. This concept works. It's not a coincidence. Now, a lot of people will argue that having softwater fishes adapt to our hard alkaline tap water enables tropical fishes to be, you know, available to a wider range of people who might not be interested in keeping them if they had to provide these specialized conditions for them to thrive. And that even providing additives, equipment, or whatever to mimic these conditions is an expense and economic hindrance to thousands. It's a hard one to argue, I suppose. But as a dog or cat owner, you have to purchase dog food, kitty litter, tick and flea meds, right? An expense, a barrier to entry of sorts. Is that a weak argument? I don't know, maybe. I think it's a good argument. A good part of why I've been so passionate about us as a hobby specialty, elevating, researching, and perfecting blackwater or botanical method aquariums and brackish for that matter, is for the very reason I just argued. I think that once we develop a body of work, experience, best practices, whatever, for creating and managing these specialty environments, that the idea of adapting fishes to the conditions that are easier for us to supply may be looked at as a laughable practice someday, much as it is with the marine fishes and invertebrates right now. And as I've cited before, attempting to understand these habitats has also given us a greater appreciation for how precious they are and for how important it is for us to safeguard and protect them and the creatures which have evolved in them. And everyone wins, the fishes, the hobby, ourselves, you know, the planet. So yeah, I think that the checkerboards which started this rant are just one example of this dichotomy. Like many other fishes, I personally feel that historically we've forced fit them into conditions which may simply not be the best for them in the long term. That's a good part of why they're considered challenging, I'll bet. Now, I know there's an entire discus culture and industry out there which will disagree inside generations of strong captive bred fishes developed by people who have forgotten, easily forgotten more about fish care than I'll probably ever know. However, I still can't help but wonder. I mean, despite incredible care and indisputable strain development for decades in captivity, have we really managed to reprogram the physiological preferences of a fish that has evolved for hundreds of thousands of generations under significantly different conditions than we provide in captivity? It's a tough one to argue, but I guess my point again is looking at it from the perspective of us versus them in terms of who's accommodating whom. I think that's important for us to ask and expect more from our fish suppliers. It's important for us to know where the fish that we're purchasing has come from, particularly if it's a wild specimen. And we're doing okay. In my opinion, if we're able to take the idea of providing our fishes with what they need, we need to know this information, research the best that we can, and provide the closest facsimile to their wild conditions that we can. It's not always easy. It doesn't always have to be. I mean, could we argue that keeping incredibly rare fishes from precious and endangered habitats is a privilege, and if you can't play the price of admission, then you shouldn't be playing a different game? I think we can, perhaps. I mean, it doesn't have to be a militant exclusionary or whatever. Yet I think we need to scrutinize ourselves and our mindset just a bit more and maybe a bit more closely sometimes. Something to ponder on a weekend, something to debate, something to work on. Stay bold, stay curious, stay passionate, stay brutally honest, and always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Feldman from 10 and Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The 10.